previous life, Del Cosa led operations for an exciting startup. The founder was a friend, she loved the people she worked with, and she was passionate about the things she worked on. But in 2019, she experienced burnout and resigned from her role. What followed was a journey of changing her relationship with her work and identity, seeking professional help for the panic attacks, anxiety and depression that landed her in hospital, and developing more mindful and sustainable habits. These days, Dill makes it her mission to drive change and create the ecosystem needed to better support women startup founders and other underserved entrepreneurs. In this episode, she shares with me how she got into working in New Zealand's tech scene, what she learned when she experienced burnout and how that experience drives her work now, and her goals for a creative entrepreneurship hub Manzana that she established to help support women and underserved entrepreneurs in New Zealand. And just a quick note to say that this episode was recorded last year, but the discussion still holds true today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Dill, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you today, especially after so many amazing recommendations from people to have you on the podcast and to share your story. So yeah, welcome. And did you want to give a bit of a self-introduction? Uh, yeah, my name is actually Dill Preet Kosa. You can call me Dill. It's kind of what people have taken to. And I'm originally from Malaysia, moved here when I was like 16 and went to school, university and sort of ended up in the space of like tech startups and biotech. But now, after many pivots in my journey, I've sort of been very focused on social impact initiatives, especially um, around supporting women founders and anyone that feels underserved by the current ecosystem. So we've got a space that allows anyone that's even starting with an idea to come in and work on that. But we also do that online through a very supportive community. Yeah, that's me. That's awesome. And I can't wait to dive into all the work that you've been doing, especially around serving like underrepresented groups in tech. Um, especially in tech startups, but I would love to know you as a person a bit more. So you mentioned that you were born and raised in Malaysia and you came over to New Zealand when you were sort of in your teens. So um, I'd love to hear more about like your family history, their journey to Malaysia, and then also your family's journey to New Zealand. I know that's a really broad question. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. I mean, in a brief like historical viewpoint it's you know that it was the colonization of uh, Malaysia under the British that brought Indian Punjabis and other races in India to Malaysia to do work under their like different initiatives and things but I know that my racial background the Punjabis were brought to be mostly in the army or like police officers and things like that. So it's just <laughs> stereotyping them into like as like a warrior kind of race. But yeah, my great grandparents were all born and raised in Malaysia. And so that's sort of how Malaysians, Punjabis kind of ended up there. And yeah, I was born uh, in Malaysia in a different state, but my family home and everything is in KL, a little suburb called Bangsa which I think I mentioned that I really love my like little suburb because it's where I spent all the formative years having fun and also like being very studious, enjoying some naughty stuff. But like at the same time, it was a great space to like meet all the different cultures that we have and, you know, 
we've got a big house there that's still like up and running 30 years later. <laughs> my parents are still there and my grandma as well. We moved to New Zealand in 2003, four. I was already like 16, turning 17, I think. And um, as the oldest of like five, you know, for me, it was like a very different experience because I only had two years in our high school, which my parents chose, for, you know, for us. I had two years there and then kind of went to uni, but everyone else, like my siblings and all are here still. So they are all a bit more integrated, I would say, but also still connected to our like background just because we've got, you know, we are still very close to our grandparents and parents and relatives who are in Malaysia, but also all over the world. What was it about New Zealand life and society that really attracted your family to want to migrate over here? Yeah, I mean, it was obviously my parents' decision and they um, had visited in the late 90s for a friend of theirs' daughter's wedding. And so for my dad, I will say it was golf. His number one has always been golf. And so he loved the golf courses here and going through them. It's just a beautiful like scenery and it's pristine. And they were like, oh, it's like actually like uh, a God zone. And they kept saying that <laughs> when they came back. But also they felt like Kiwis were really nice and polite. And it's a very stark difference to Malaysians because Malaysians are very much like go, go, go. And like kind of just say things off the cuff and maybe there's an element of rudeness there you know but um yeah so that was that and then I think also at that time New Zealand was more open to like immigrants and we applied for a PR around that time and uh, the main reason like in all seriousness is the fact that they really saw that we could potentially get more equal opportunity in our tertiary education here in comparison to Malaysia where there is like there are quota systems in place for the majority population of Malays and we already had to like work twice three times as hard just to like you know be up there and get our straight A's and like make sure we get into uni but that might not be a a short thing so for them it was like well we'd love our kids to have that opportunity and New Zealand looks open like to immigrants, so let's go for it. And so that's kind of how it all happened. And um, and then we got it and then we kind of moved in 2003. You've talked to me before about the difference between like this, I guess the people in power and like the sort of structural and systemic divisions that they put in place because of the way that they govern the country versus how you're actually treated within like your social circles like amongst your friends it sounded like there was quite a bit of difference so between friends it was like everyone just treated each other as equals but then you have like these systems of power in place which ranked people I guess based on their ethnicities yeah I mean it's um I think it's quite well known and there is media censorship around it but like you know it's just the fact that like the Malays in power because they are majority I would say like 80% or more of Malaysia's Malay and predominantly Muslim as well so that was that that they wanted to preserve the country for Malays by Malays but that was what the people in power kind of saw not the early prime ministers that we had I think they were pretty a lot of them had gone to like London and um, Oxford to do their, from what I remember, to do their studies. And then, you know, they sort of came back with quite a progressive view. But then 
over the years, it became more like extreme and like kind of pushing their own racist agenda instead of looking at it like as all of us. And it's really weird for me because obviously when I was growing up, it was all like all the races didn't really see each other as different, different, but we did respect each other's cultures and religions and kind of lived harmoniously on the ground. But then it's just a massive difference at the power level of like the government essentially. And then of course, over the years it got more corrupt. I don't know if you've heard of the one MDB scandal that was oh, that, yeah. that global, <laughs> oh, like it was just embarrassing for a lot of Malaysians really, because <laughs> we didn't pick these people as well. And the other thing is that, you know, it's a democracy, but it's really not when we, I was talking to our Malaysian friend yesterday, actually, that even if the minorities went to vote, we're probably never going to get our own racist parties up, you know, up there because we're always, we're all, we're lesser than Malays. And there was maybe once that we kind of all joined forces and, you know, vote, not me, but like um, Malaysians in the last like three or four years that they went for the party that, you know, while it was Malay, but it was more progressive and they voted them in. And then it just got like, <laughs> it got like changed within a day. Someone else became PM and it was like a massive embarrassment. So I think a lot of Malaysians, especially the non-Malays are very like frustrated and over it. They don't feel like they're listened to and you feel kind of, to you're made to feel foreign in your own country, which is, yeah, weird. Yeah, interesting. And I, I can totally understand why your family would want to take everyone out of that situation and hopefully continue your lives in a, a seemingly more fair society. Was that your experience as you were growing up in New Zealand? Well, my teenage years and then like early 20s, I just was not interested in like what was you know like I was just like having fun and then like university I decided to go to Dunedin which is like so far away from home I know if like my parents are listening they know that I did it because I wanted to be like free and um you know from protective parents (laughs) and I kind of had fun like with everyone and so I didn't really notice or yeah I didn't feel different but I over the years like I think the first time really it hit me because I think I mentioned that even in university you have like international students and I love meeting like people from diverse backgrounds more you know because I like feel more the sense of familiarity and I feel more comfortable being around like different races and stuff because of Malaysia (laughs) because of how I grew up and so that I kind of got that all I felt like I was getting all of that through university and school And it was more so like after I left university and was like trying to get jobs, I started to notice like I definitely I am different and my my voice is different. My accent's different. I look different. And, you know, I'm I'm also I'm also not male, which I, Mm. you know, in the space that we work in or like tech, it, it is male dominated. And I felt like that was a disadvantage. And that was a bit of a shock for me because in university, I really felt like there was equity amongst our genders and like we would all listen to each other, you know, in group projects and things didn't really feel that like that one was dominating over the other. But as soon as I left and I was like, wow, this is really the reality (laughs) that it's still a patriarchal system. And I felt like 
we said I suddenly like thrown into like the 1950s like Mad Men era because I know like my first few roles I was very much like the coffee girl <laughs> like the the tea person and it's like all the notes person and it's yeah I mean it's funny seeing that on tv sometimes but that was actually me like a master's graduate doing all of that because you were told to do it and you just you know you're so junior you're like I guess this is what it takes to you know go up the ladder yeah but that's like the narrative that they always feed us but it doesn't have to be like that right like just because you've just finished university doesn't make you like the coffee girl or like the memo taker especially if you're a woman it really shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't. And I mean, I didn't, well, I think when I was, I was quite young, like entering the workforce and I think some people already like know how to navigate it. I feel like I didn't and I didn't know who to go to. And I was also, you know, like an immigrant and a person of color, like a, just very different. So I didn't want to rock the boat in any way. And my mom and parents always used to say like, when in Rome, do what the Romans do kind of thing so it was very much about adapting and integrating rather than like rocking the boat or trying to be uniquely you so I think in my early days I really couldn't yeah it was very confusing yeah it's really hard especially when you are at certain intersections in society because people are like oh you just have to be you but then it's like trying to balance being you means you're so different to what you see around you and is that acceptable how much do I actually want to stick my head out and like rock the boat what consequences am I going to have to face because I do that as someone who is a person of color woman of color or any other sort of intersection of society yeah no I actually agree and I think that like no one's well Still, I don't think they're ready for us to be like our full ethnic, full self, you know, because then society would look a lot like, I'm not even kidding, it would look like Malaysia or it would look like Singapore because there's literally every single different ethnicity that you can find. And it's just like a melting pot of different cultures. Yeah, it's like you can express yourselves to a certain point, but full expression is a bit too much. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Um, so you went to university and you did biotech as your undergrad. And then for your master's, you did... Bioscience bio- Enterprise. Bio- yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about, about that and also how that led you into getting into tech startups? Yeah. Well, when I was kind of entering university, biotech was kind of pegged and still is pegged as like the, you know, the 21st century's big era of advancement, you know, it's through biotech. And so I really wanted to study that, which was obviously in contrast to what my parents would want me to do. And so that was like the first big rebellion (laughs) for me against my parents, which, as you might know, always want to push you down like more stable routes of professions, so you know, medicine or other things. But so biotech it was for me, and it was it was actually really awesome, like doing that in Otago because we had I had a great lab actually that I spent my honors year with, and I learned a lot of stuff. And I was like, wow, like there's not just cool stuff happening in this lab, but all of the different labs at the universities, 
like biochemistry department or physics department that had actual real world applications that I felt like could either save lives or like create personalized diagnostic um, tools and medicine. And so it was kind of interesting. And I thought about doing a, like an MBA or something after, but I think the closest thing that I found, which was super interesting, was the like it was a newly created course um, that came out of the Knowledge Wave initiatives in the early 2000s, and it was called Bioscience Enterprise at the University of Auckland. So I kind of came back to Auckland and did that immediately after graduating. We covered kind of all of the elements that it would take to get like a science-based uh, product out to market. Um, so it was a lot of theory as well, but also, yeah, it was, it was great because our friends that, the classmates that we sort of studied with in the cohort are now working in the industry in like really amazing roles. So we're all like colleagues in some way and we all kind of help each other as well. So I, I really enjoyed that element of it. Biotech in like 2008 and 10, 2008, 2010, around that time was not a big thing in New Zealand. We might have had like one or two or three kind of companies to work at. And it was also the recession. So it was kind of like post-recession space. And I kind of had to quickly think of my feet and um, I wasn't really getting roles. So I got one, like an analyst role at um, a software startup that was kind of doing a bunch of different softwares. And I just kind of took it really because I was like, I need to get my door in, my kind of feet in the door ASAP. Right. So I did that for a while and then, yeah, then it kind of, that's how I really ended up in software. <laughs> and you've done so much work in this space, but specifically focusing on women and especially like women in leadership and female founders and other underrepresented groups. What drives your passion or motivation for that? kind of work yes it's my experience in the last decade or so in sort of our startup ecosystem I would say and I I never really noticed it until I kind of came out from a startup that I was working at like over five years I think and then I had a burnout <laughs> that forced me to like you know resign because I really just hit a wall and I just couldn't go any further and I was so upset because that was a, one of the like pivots for me because one, I was like, my identity was really tied to the company and the team and the people in there. And I just was like, this is one achievement that feels like it's a failure for me because I had to stop very early, like you know, just drop out of the race or whatever you want to say. But uh, I had to go through massive emotions of like, what does this mean for me and my career? Because I couldn't really work after a burnout and I tried. So I was like kind of getting and my, my interest has always been in operating startups. So making stuff happen and getting shit done. That was like me. And the pace of startups are like fast only because it's the inherited culture from Silicon Valley of like, you know, we've got to hustle. We're going to like uh, work 100 hour weeks and blah, blah, blah. But so it was in 2019 that I kind of had this burnout and I try to take on another operate, operations role, but I really couldn't go as fast or like had as much energy as I did previously to like really grow a startup in New Zealand, you know? So 
I kind of had to take a step back and just take time off in a way. And I was doing like contract work, which was part time, but it was enough to like kind of keep going. You know, I kind of thought about like, why <laughs> is it my fault? Because I was a, such a high achiever because I, you know, straight A student, straight A's through uni and like kind of was winning all, sort of like doing a really cool startup with a fr- with friends and um, getting recognized for an event, but everything just crashed. And I, no, I think that was, I was 30 years old at that point. So I was like, what is going on? Like, how did this happen? Cause I can't even like do my next thing. Like, I feel like I'd fallen off the career ladder or like, you know, whatever you want to say. It was actually the most horrible, depressing feeling. So I really had to think back through my career choices and like what I had done. And I realized like it is because it wasn't so much me, but it was the system that I was operating in. And and like, really, I was on autopilot for like years, more than a decade. Like I was just like kind of growing, going through this like stuff and like just following leaders and you know they're following other leaders and there's like this vortex that we're in <laughs> in startups and like some cultures are like very culty as well and you know it's kind of weird and saying things like your startup is your family I think it's so detrimental to kind of do stuff like that because they're not your family it's the people that you work with um and so I kind of was really sucked in and so that system, I was like, well, why is the system the way it is? Because it's capitalist and patriarchal. So it's really because of all of that, that it just created no space for me. And I kind of felt like I got sucked into the system and spat out basically because I'm different. I'm a woman and I have different energy and I'm more feminine energy, which didn't really vibe with masculine spaces or startups or leadership you know perceptions of like leadership because I've often was told in the past like I'll never be a leader because my voice is like like this <laughs> or like it's not low enough or like it's not stern enough or like I don't stand and talk a certain way basically I don't stand and talk like a man but I I realized a lot of that in the last few years like that was a lot that was my awakening you know like I was like wow okay basically I did all of this and fell and it's because it's not really my fault except that I played a role in that system and so when I took like a bird's eye view I realized if we have more feminine energy and like that's kind of what I would say like that needs to be injected into like this patriarchal system right and more impact-based work as well that we could potentially flip the system or like create a better balance because I also noticed some women founders, they kind of start out with a quite a holistic view of, well, we're also going to be looking after ourselves like while we build a startup or some of them are parents and they're like, have to have a forced balance, you know? So I was like, cool. That just means we just need more women founders coming up. And I wanted to do everything I could to like, support them create a community around them and I was also thinking about doing something of my own but I realized like without the right structures in place I I still felt like there were problems for me to solve that I wanted to spend my energy on instead of doing my own thing but I have seen massive differences in gender people investing in different genders so like I've seen a male founded startup get 
seed funding up to like a million or more or pre-seed funding just based on like literally an, a paper MVP or <laughs> like a like a screen of like showing what they had one screen you know and whereas I've seen a female founder go for the same amount of funding at the same level with a product with users and sh- like monthly you know month on month growth and not getting the same level of like just not even being entertained actually <laughs> so that part I, I'm like cool there's definitely there's a bias there that's playing a role and um yeah it's another one of those things that if they don't want to change or ex- manage their bias then we're not really going to see a change in that yeah exactly and yeah it's all about like who's at the top as well right and who's who holds the power in the system and when it is the same kinds of people then like attracts like how have you seen that impact on women founders and like women who want to start their own businesses in New Zealand I think that they get quite disillusioned very early after approaching investors because one is that you know you're um you're not taken seriously but very early in my startup journey I met a few women founders in tech who were just like not taken seriously and therefore not funded and or they dealt with some investors who were probably making sexual remarks and like inappropriate behavior you completely get put off because you're like you know what screw this but the the emotions that they go to is like screw this I'm gonna do it myself I'm just gonna have to bootstrap my way through it or you know if you're lucky you have like a good connection with someone a high net worth individual or an angel investor who's actually has the same values maybe or is a a woman themselves and so they can like start to fund you a little but most of the time it's like this internal battle of like do I suck it up and go back to them or because there's really no other avenues sometimes you know almost all male investors have that behavior which I think is changing but like we will have to wait and see you end up building it themselves and I almost feel like that is better because now that I'm working with a couple of people in that space and talking to them daily I feel like they're also coming to that conclusion like why would I give away my equity as well to like a bunch of male investors who have zero ethics and you know just for the sake of growing at like massive pace where whereas you can just build slowly maybe not as fast as like Silicon Valley wants it or like our investors want to see but if you don't have them then you can build it your own and like you know revenue-based financing is available and also there's different avenues now like crowdfunding which is a bit more empowering for women so yeah I feel like that is what I've um, observed lately there is a lot of initiatives though in the last two years I'm not sure if you've seen but like we have a lot of uh, initiatives and programs and funds that are like specifically investing in women founders. So I think that is very important because there are some, not all, but some women founders who do feel like they need that boost or like they need the specific initiative to help, you know, get them to the next level. Cause we all struggle with that confidence and imposter syndrome and all that stuff. So that's kind of where I'm seeing it going and, I do love seeing a lot of funds that are targeted for women, but 
at the end of the day, it's like it just matters who the investor is. They have to be good investors, just simply put. And it's great that there are more and more initiatives coming up these days because, yeah, like one of the things as well is if women don't feel like they can even step into the ring kind of thing um then that's also like a loss of innovation right Mm -hmm. in a space that like sorely needs it 100 percent. and I've um well the kind of women founders that I'm surrounded with are ones that are building with social impact or environmental impact embedded in their business from the start whether it's not it might not be their core product you know but it's just that they've thought through like how does this impact the people around me or like down the line you know are we going to be like another Facebook because we know the you know the bad effects of that and stuff so I think that's like that's why I actually back women founders way more and all the time like and forever (laughs) yeah that's awesome so you are a co-founder of this Manzana creative space for supporting women and Mm -hmm. um would you say like other entrepreneurs like underserved entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. but you also had you you ran an initiative prior to this right where you it was a similar thing right like to sort of bring together tech entrepreneurs to sort of raise awareness for inclusive inclusivity in the startup Mm -hmm. community and so do you want to tell me more about these projects that you have led and run and what you're hoping to achieve yes so um I think the whole element of it really stems down to like a systems change that's really what I want my ultimate goal is even if I never achieve it you know is just to see better ways of building startups and kind of building it in like I said a feminine manner I'm not necessarily saying like a feminine you know energy or anything it's more like using principles of femininity like caring about people you know and that can be done by anyone it doesn't have to be female you don't have to be female to do that but really I started with Athena X which for me was like important because I wanted to challenge the system initially I wanted to be like look at these founders they're not white men <laughs> they're amazing founders who are like of different backgrounds maybe they're minorities or like immigrants or men neurodiverse and you don't see them because you don't think that they can run companies, but they can. And they're amazing. And so I kind of wanted to showcase them, but I also wanted to bring all of them together in like an inclusive way. And, you know, we there was a community there for a bit. I did go out for funding initially, but I sort of didn't get it or didn't get through, which is fine. I was like, we'll just do this. I wasn't even sure whether it was going to be a money making thing or whatever, but I just kind of wanted it to make a point. And I think like the highlight of it was being able to like also see that, yes, we need more diversity in our ecosystem in terms of the founder pool, which which we really do have, but they're not being served. Um, or if they do get through the door uh, of some places, maybe they're not they're not getting exactly what they need or like they're being pushed through like programs that maybe they don't actually need to go through because it's a bit patronizing or, you know, I've, we've had that feedback over time. Then seeing that the problem was actually like all of them just needed funding to get going and there was really no avenue for them to get funding because they were just not taken seriously as like I previously mentioned. And so um, this wasn't just women, so it was like all the people that are basically 
marginalized, you know, in, in society. And they all actually have brilliant ideas that they want to bring to life, but no one to like push them or even saying like, yes, you can do this. You know, you can do it. You can go for funding. But then the funder side is a different story. And the highlight of that entire project that I did was probably speaking about it with some groups of founders and getting them to see that like, yes, they can indeed play a role and build their own companies. Doesn't have to, they don't have to play in the current system, but there are global investors that will look at them. And then we had a like amazing fireside chat with Arlen Hamilton, who was like the VC um, from America. And she did backstage, she founded Backstage Capital. And her story is amazing. And I just like, we really, I just really wanted to showcase her in New Zealand. Cause I was like, this is a woman who was homeless from being homeless to like building like a first $5 million fund and becoming a VC. Then, you know, deploying it to like black indigenous and people of color and then growing that. And like, she's had a multiple fund, funds now, but that was kind of that. But I think again, you know, I do these things and I kind of like, overexert myself and then I get overly passionate and I burn myself out so I'm like oh god I did it again but I guess that kind of led me to learn a couple of things and pivot in a way so I did sunset that project and start a new one with my friends that I met in the last year Shay, Zara and um, Rachel so we kind of actually chatted about it once and then initially well we we co-initiated is what we said <laughs> this like space which we found which was vacant and Auckland Council is kind of doing this campaign to like get people back to the city and this is over the last six months you know so it was giving the space out for us to use for any sort of social impact or whatever that we wanted to do that would bring people in and we were like cool that like this is the perfect timing to, to have a space for women founders and underserved founders or underrepresented founders to come in and ideate and like, you know, because after the pandemic, the great resignation happened, people have either gone into flexible roles, are freelancing or entrepreneurs themselves. And so we were like, this is your like spot, you know, we offer it for a very, very reasonable price. And uh, you can come in and we kind of, I help connect them to people they need to be connected to. But also just like sometimes just having a space for people to do and ideate and be inspired is enough. So in feedback with our community, which is so core to like everything we do, is that they want to see like community around it rather than just the physical space. So, you know, that's as important to them as a physical space. So, yeah, that's kind of like the next level up for us, which is to create a bunch of events and like cool people to, that they can talk to, people that they can see as themselves as well. That is so awesome. Just going on that last bit around like representation. It's so important for other women and other um, like diverse groups, I guess, if you want to yeah. call it like that, um, to see people who are thriving in spaces where you don't normally see them thrive. Exactly. There's so many other different people that have built companies that IPO'd that are not really in our dominant media or anything. So I'm kind of keen to, they might not be in New Zealand, but you know, they are internationally. And so I'm also very keen to get that them profiled and like talk to them and bring, I don't know, bring them over, <laughs> but also like, you know, 
a Zoom or whatever, that would be so cool just to hear from like an Indian woman who like built a fintech and like is on the way to becoming a unicorn. And that's a real story, you know? So, yeah. And can anyone join these events or how would they go about being a part of this community? Yeah, so our um, current iteration of how to participate with Manzana is through membership. So we've got like $25 per month membership and you can use the space and be part of the community and its events and like host your events, but also it sponsors like a spot from of a, for a founder from a disadvantaged background or someone who might be uh, from a low income household to come in and do their startup as well. So that's what the membership is currently in. And uh, non-members are also welcome. Obviously, we might charge a small fee just because it helps to keep the space running and like all our tech stack, you know, running all the subscriptions that we use to like run the space and automate things. But really, like it's more just we're really just happy to hear from anyone that wants to dive into entrepreneurship or, you know, like just wanting to experiment to just come by the space or like talk to us online and we can always take it from there, you know, and find something suitable so that we can be part of the community in some way. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing about that. Yeah. I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. So you did say that you had a bit of a panic attack, was it? Or following on from, was it your first role out of university and... It kind of came out of the way that you were working mm-hmm. um, and also, I guess, like your sort of overachieving yes. mentality, <laughs> I guess. So I wondered if we could talk a bit about that and just some of the most important things that you've learned from that experience, because it sounded like you tied a lot of your self-worth and identity to your work. And obviously, when that doesn't work out, then that can really heavily affect the way that you see yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually like a very tough topic for and I think people who might have gone through a similar thing would understand. But if it, it, it is really such a hard thing. Like for me, it was like my greatest fall from like whatever I was. But, um, you know, in the end now, I feel like I'm in a better place to talk about it. But back then I, I I was yeah I was kind of like a straight A student all throughout like my education in uni and I always had like goals to be like a C-level person in like a company and I had like my my role models were like Sheryl Sandberg and stuff that was back in the day and you know very much like okay that's that's the role I see myself in because I'm a doer and I'm also a leader and so I can get there but I worked in um, obviously a bunch of startups and like I worked in um, investment for a bit as well and that ended up with a startup that I worked in for the one that I kind of attached myself with super hard <laughs> like you know, I was the operator for the startup and uh, helped grow it as well in the early days so over five four or five years and it was growing and we did multiple rounds and it was kind of like it was fun and I was learning a lot because it is exponentially, you know, education by doing. And so that was happening. But I uh, hit a wall that I, I guess I could have seen it coming because my energy was dipping and I was like getting very irritable and like very, you know, like I needed to have naps or crying at work and stuff. And like, I just felt like, okay, I had no choice when I hit that wall because 
you can't just take a leave of absence from a startup in my in the position that I was in because the startup's going to change in like six months and then you know you you're fully left behind so like my only option was to resign so I did and I was like broken after that because it was almost like that was my life and suddenly I have no life <laughs> and I was uh, like I like I said I was I like identified so strongly with the people there and like you know they were my friends and like we call ourselves family but I just again now looking back thinking like we're not family we're co-workers you know like don't do that to yourself and your two people and then I yeah I had to like force myself to reset and after spiraling down <laughs> the only way is up and so on the way up I guess I figured out that I it wasn't my fault like because I was beating myself up like I was like I'm a massive failure like, you know I was like mm. I got why did I go through you know and do these degrees and like only to like fall off the ladder within the first 10 years of working and potentially never get to work full-time again because by then my doctor even now my doctors uh, only recommend that I do like 15 hours a week just because of all the chronic stuff that comes with burnouts which it takes years so please nobody go down that road but um I yeah I sort of figured out that actually it was not me long story short it was like it's the system that's not made for women and our mm -hmm. different energies and you know I think it's very masculine patriarchal and capitalist which of course it has to be <laughs> you know we see as venture capitalism so it has to be but it has no space for women to really be themselves and bring their varying energies you know in the month even to work because you have to be like go 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 and they want to see you as like a specific kind of leader that like stands tall and talks in a lower voice like you know it's just like that's not me maybe then I'm not a leader in your world you know so that's kind of where I got to and I had to like take a lot of steps back and be like well is this really the system I want to be in because clearly it's not made for me and it's very sad because I was like really thought I would experience more equity in social sense in these spaces but it wasn't that way and so yeah very very mm. like jaded for a long time and so did realizing that it was actually not you did that help you heal from that experience yeah I was still going through it like there are definitely days that I'm like why am I not working full-time in like a, a startup and like I did apply a couple of places but then I kept saying like no I can't because of my health you know like it's I'm still going through like the motions of it of like do I participate do I not but I know that in my gut, and I always come back to this conclusion, is like I just have a different pathway now and I have to go with that flow. So, you know, building Manzana kind of gave me an outlet and my and my colleagues to experiment with our ideas and our unique selves and create a space that we would see ourselves in. And while we might not participate fully in the ecosystem, we might be in the fringes, you know, but it is very uniquely us and made for like by women for women kind of thing. Mm. So I think this space physical or not has been a savior for me in a lot of senses. Cause it's like, cool. Like I create a sense of belonging, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's what so many of us are looking for, mm-hmm. regardless of what context it's in, right? Like just a sense of belonging and yes. community. Mm-hmm. I think probably one last thing I'd say is just from observing like what society is going through through the pandemic and now post pandemic is like I feel and I don't know if everyone feels this way but like social changes are happening where there is a focus or at least a lot more conversation around inclusivity of people of color and immigrants and the value that we bring to an economy and you know while there are spaces that are like rejecting some of these conversations and maybe like not paying attention I feel the change is coming so that gives me some hope absolutely thank you so much for that and thank you for sharing your story of everything from where you came from through your experience with burnout and also your mission for supporting like women founders and other diverse groups in Aotearoa but also globally so yeah thank you so much for your time today to share a bit about who you are and what you do and what you're passionate about well thank you for giving me the space to share my story and also for listening (laughs) you've been amazing (laughs) so thank you Thank you for listening to Not Your Token Minority and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dill. You can learn more about Manzana through the link in the show notes or at manzana.org.nz. That's M-A-N-Z-A-N-A dot org dot N-Z.